0: So Money episode 993, Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at the Wall Street Journal and author of The Man Who Solved the Market.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Instinctively, they realize that individuals um, can't be trusted to make decisions in in times of of crisis. Uh, And we make, especially when it comes to money, we make, we we get greedy, we have panic, we, we make mistake after mistake. So Simon's is the one to prove that you can make a lot of money relying on machines.
0: And that man, Jim Simons, the greatest moneymaker in modern financial history, would go on to generate investment returns of 66%. Every year, making billions of dollars. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnush Tarabi. If you're investing on an automated platform, if you were around when the stock market did a flash crash uh, several years ago, well, you can thank Jim Simons for that to some extent. Our guest today is Gregory Zuckerman. He's an accomplished journalist and author, special writer at the Wall Street Journal, three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, which is the highest award in business journalism. And he has a new book out called The Man Who Solved the Market. It's a look into the world of Jim Simons, who is worth $23 billion, founded Renaissance Technologies, and has earned over $100 billion in profits in his career lifetime. Yeah. Have you heard of this guy? I hadn't until this point, to be completely honest. You know, I've heard of, obviously, Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, but Jim Simons, hmm, not a household name. Here's a conversation about his genius, his impact on the financial world and the world at large. And is this for real? Here's our guest with the answers, Gregory Zuckerman. Gregory Zuckerman, welcome to So Money.
1: Hey, great to be here.
0: Congratulations. Multiple author here, but your latest is called The Man Who Solved the Market. It is the story of Jim Simons, who is Known for launching the Quant Revolution, um, some would say breaking through the market. And you know, when we think of amazing investors, colloquially we think of like you know Warren Buffett, George Soros, Ray Dalio. I've never heard of Jim Simons. Why isn't his name more of a household name?
1: Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, Jim Simons is, I would argue, the greatest money maker in financial history. He's got uh, a fund, the Medallion Fund, which is on average up 66% a year since 1988. The guy's worth $23 billion. Uh, But he's not well-known, partly because he is secretive. So unlike Buffett, who really does enjoy speaking on TV and being profiled in books, um, Jim Simons just likes making money (laughs) and doing math problems and trying to uh, cure autism and things like that. Mm. He has zero interest in publicity. It actually... He fears it because he thinks that maybe someone will learn his edge and his firm's edge. So partly you've never heard of him because he's so secretive and partly it's because he's a quant and he uses math and science and algorithms and you can't get on TV. And <laughs> when you're asked, you know, where's the market going? He has no clue where the market's going. He doesn't even try to predict where the market's going. He, and he doesn't even know what his machines are doing. So he's not a great interview. So if you could
0: simplify it for us, basically, how does his algorithm work? So he's a quant guy. He's a math guy. He's a genius. He uh, recognized that there were patterns in the market. Nobody was really picking up on them. He he created algorithms. And what what is the hack that he kind of developed?
1: Sure. So he, in many ways, is a pioneer. He's a pioneer when it comes to being a quant, a quantitative investor. In other words, not using intuition, judgment, gut, instinct, Reasoning,
0: rationale, all the things that we think the market is, you know, it's
1: Exactly. And not even doing things like talking to management. He finds that stuff distracting. And it's just not how they do it. So it's a whole different breed. So he's a pioneer when it comes to that. But he's also a pioneer just in terms of embracing big data. You know, they didn't call it big data back then. But he was gathering and cleaning meaning making sure it's accurate, uh, data. Back in the early 1980s, when no one cared about this stuff, he was creating predictive algorithms. He was He's a pioneer when it comes to just machine learning and, and AI. So um, um, to simplify what he does, he and his colleagues, and he's a, actually 81 now, so he does not work in there day to day, but uh, he's still the architect of this whole thing. They look for patterns in the market, and the assumption being that these patterns are going to repeat. And we're talking about trading patterns, usually – they call it moments to months, but you can think of it as a day or two, a pattern that lasts a day or two, and it could be any investment. And their assumption, and it's not clear it's always going to work, but their assumption is that the past in some some, some ways foretells the future and that these patterns are going to repeat. So when the market, when this happens to this investment and to this economic figure, what have you, what have you uh, in the past, well, something similar is going to happen in the future. So they, they, again, they don't try to figure out, and I can explain a little more detail that They don't predict uh, investments. It's all relationships, and it's a Mm -hmm. whole different type of trading.
0: When you hear 66% gains year over year, you think like Ponzi scheme. (laughs) I mean, this is not – I mean, even Warren Buffett, uh, I think, what, 20-some percent year over year? It's like this is is beyond what even we think of as exceptional. And so uh, were there ever any suspicions of his method?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. And there's, there still are. <laughs> um, the suspicions on my part, suspicions on mm-hmm. others, and that's you know kept me up at night for a little while as I spent two years on this project. What if he is a Ponzi scheme? And some people, especially those who are a little jealous and envious, have dismissed him as maybe something of a Ponzi, but he's not. And I'll tell you a few reasons why. The first thing is uh, the fund in question. It's called the Medallion Fund. It's only his own money and his colleagues. So they would really have no reason to lie about their returns, and they produce, they turn out this money every single year, and it's actually, it's not just on paper. They give it out to their partners. So in other words, it's capped. They don't make it any bigger than $10 billion, and then they don't compound the returns. Let's say, hypothetically, uh, it's up 50% of the year. So in other words, it's a $10 billion fund. They make $5 billion in profit. And they've done that many years. They give out those $10 billion. So you can't really pretend that it's, we're up 50% when you're not because their partners will be upset. And they'll say, well, hold on a second here. Where's that money? Where's that $5 billion? Mm-hmm. Um, there are other reasons to think, too. The SEC after Madoff was concerned about uh, Jim Simons and his colleagues and whether it was a Ponzi. And they spent a long time in there um, ensuring that it wasn't. So there are a lot of reasons to, to be uh, pretty confident that they're not a Ponzi.
0: Many of us don't know who Jim Simons is, but he has impacted the financial industry in ways that uh, we can probably appreciate. Can you can you trickle it down for us and and explain some of the Jim Simons impact on things like perhaps everyday trading uh, or even you know these automated platforms that we that have become ubiquitous now with uh, with financial planning.
1: Sure. And frankly, he's had a broad impact on, on broader society as well. But yes. in terms of the world of finance, so he was one of the earliest pioneers and the most important one to say, I'm going to turn decisions over to machines. And we're talking in the early 1980s, and my book talks about how difficult it was and how he, even he ran into difficulties and wasn't comfortable with the approach. He threw his hands up in the air and said it's a black box I, I i don't know why the machine is telling us to, to buy and sell and he got frustrated with his own cl- colleagues at times there was one time when they were their machines their their uh, models or mathematical models were saying buy so many uh, contracts for main potatoes that they actually cornered the market for this stuff and regulators called upset led to forcing them to sell the stuff and millions of losses. So it took them over a decade. And that was one of the surprises from the project that this firm up 66% a year actually went through so dealt with so many obstacles and almost gave up a bunch of times. But he basically proved that you can turn decisions over to machines and models and let them, as opposed to you know individuals meeting management and looking at financial the reports and annual reports and such. The, the Warren Buffett classic, Peter Lynch, you know, own what you what you know, buy what you know. They, Jim Simon said, no, 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 we're going to do a different approach. We're going to look for patterns and let the machines make the decisions because individuals are irrational often and all the behavioral mistakes that we all know about today, the condiment, all those kind of greed and mm-hmm. fear and anchoring, all that stuff. I don't think Simons and his, his colleagues necessarily were um, fe- were aware of all those issues, at least on a conceptual basis, but instinctively they realized that individuals um, can't be trusted to make decisions in, in times of, of crisis. Uh, and we make, especially when it comes to money, we make, we, we get greedy, we have panic, um, we, we make mistake after mistake. So Simons is the one to prove that you can make a lot of money. Relying on machines and other people started shifting in that approach. Um, He didn't really teach it to them as much as show that those returns are possible and that there's a better way of doing it. And today, 31% of all trading is done by these quads. You know, Mm -hmm. we turn on CNBC or something and it's, you know, the latest talking head, but those guys are less important than ever. It's people whose machines are governing their trading because of people like Jim Simons. That are more important than ever. Is your
0: opinion that this is a healthier way to run the market to operate? That it has created a lot of wealth and for for select people. And but he's also been very philanthropic and he's been very much making an impact in society. Like any advent of technology, there's sort of the good with the bad. And and what what? So we've we've obviously talked a lot about some of the benefits of this, but are there any drawbacks?
1: Well. Yeah, I struggle with a number of them. I mean, frankly, I don't know if our society should be such that individuals like Jim Simons and his colleagues um, control this much wealth. I mean, he's worth $23 billion. His colleague, Robert Mercer, is individually probably the most important reason why Donald Trump is in the office, because in the, in the presidential office, because uh, Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca Mercer, got behind Donald Trump at a really... Um, difficult period for for Mr. Trump, right after the whole Bill, Billy Bush thing, and they got behind him in terms of money. But more importantly, they put Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway in the Trump campaign, and the rest is history. And he played Robert Mercer, this, this colleague of Jim Simons, played an important role when it came to things like Breitbart. He owned Breitbart. He was behind Brexit. He helped in terms of Brexit. So individuals, should billionaires have this much power in our society? Some are doing really amazing things. Um, with it, but others, maybe not as much. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it to others to decide. So mm-hmm. it raises that kind of question. And there's also the question of whether we might have another flash crash. People remember in 2010 when oh, yes. in a matter, matter of moments, the machines went wild. And, and every decade or so, we do have get some issue like that. 87, you can argue, was a crash that was due to machines and to models and it went, went awry. Um, and LTCM is... Not exactly what Jim Simons and his colleagues do. There are a lot of differences I write about in my book, but there's some similarities, and that was ninety uh ninety-seven, ninety nineteen ninety-eight, I forgot this point, And a flash crash again. So yes, yeah, sometimes the machines go off the rails, and that is a danger. I would counter that by saying that we individuals also um don't handle markets all that well and we panic and, and sell. And if you remember In in 1987, the the traders on the floor – I mean, I I wasn't covering the market at the time, but everything I've read is the traders suddenly disappeared. So sometimes the machines lead us awry, but individuals do too. So it's not clear if this is a safer environment as a result. But I I do have to note that the the market has been relatively placid over the last bunch of years, decade or so, especially the last five years or so, as the computers have become more important in the market. Mm
0: -hmm. And in some ways it democratizes it because more people can – Participate when it becomes something that is just more of a technologically driven path, as opposed to hiring a professional to help you make the trade and using, you know, that's part of the appeal and sort of the marketing behind a lot of these online trading platforms or these automated platforms that kind of take out the human element and just rely on algorithms.
1: So now, and and the robo advisors, and robo advisors,
0: exactly. You mentioned that Simons is a private individual. What did he feel about this book? I assume you had conversations with him. What was his feedback?
1: It's a good question. He's, we've had a, a complicated relationship. Let's put it that way. So for a long time, he wouldn't talk to me for the book, and I kind of went ahead and did it anyway. He eventually was generous with his time. We spent over 10 hours together and emailed back and forth, but he also was careful not to tell me secrets within the firm. He wouldn't really talk about trading too much. He's had a, a illustrious and fascinating career even before he started trading. He was a code breaker for the government in the Cold War um, against the Russians. He built a math department at SUNY Stony Brook. And he's really among the most important mathematicians, certainly geometers over the past 1,500 years. His work still has broad impact. And his His philanthropy today is really fascinating, everything from, as I said, trying to um, find treatments for autism, but also understanding the the origins of life and, and the universe. He's spending tens of millions of dollars trying to understand if the Big Bang is accurate or not. So he was generous with his time to talk about a lot of that stuff, but didn't really want to open the kimono up about their own trading secrets and that I had to get on my own. Um, so he's a, he's yeah, we, we a, we, he's a, he's a fascinating individual. But we have a complicated relationship. I, I think he preferred, he's asked me not to write, he asked me not to write the book, but uh, it was too interesting a topic not to.
0: Yeah. Well, how did you initially
1: discover his work? So if you, I'm sort of hardcore, I'm at the wall street journal 23 years. I write about the buy side. In other words, big investors. And if you spend time focused on who's making money, who's not, it's not all I do, but it's part of what I do. Then you keep hearing about this guy and Yes. They're secretive, but they're and they don't really have they didn't have outside investors for a long time, and yet every you know drinks you have someone coffee with someone lunch, oh, geez yeah I, I had a great year but you know really had a good year that guy Jim <laughs> Simon <laughs> and so you you keep hearing about his name so in our my, in that world sort of the buy side hardcore finance world he's sort of a legend it's you know Babe Ruth kind of thing. You keep hearing about Babe Ruth's exploits. You don't know how he did it. I and mean, that was sort of the mystery. And that was part of the reason I did it too, that it was it was a mystery and no one had written about it. And I thought it'd be a, a challenge to take on.
0: You So you've been at the Journal for 20 plus years and along the way you've won several top awards. The Gerald Loeb Award, you've won that three times. What had, drew you to this space as a journalist? What What was the curiosity really stemming from? Um,
1: most people go into financial journalism because they love journalism and financial journalism pays a little bit better. There are more jobs than other kind of areas. I came at it differently. I love finance. I always thought I'd go into finance. I remember being a kid and I'd look at the back of the Skippy container the, and as you're having peanut butter and, jelly and, and I looked at the back of the thing and it says Procter & Gamble, owned by Procter & Gamble or something. I was like amazed by that. There's no like Skippy Corporation or something. I thought, you know, every company, every product was a company. But no, they're a conglomerate and the jelly company is owned by somebody too. And I don't know, I found that kind of fascinating. And then as I got a little bit older, I got into making money and I didn't make it myself. But I I was interested in how people make money, how people trade. There's a rush. There's also just sort of – I covered politics a little bit, and you don't. There's no spinning when it comes to investing, as opposed to politics, and that frustrates me when I deal with politicians and I deal with people in the world of politics. Everything's spinning and lying, misleading. When it comes to Wall Street and people making money or losing money, it's like a scorecard. It's a little bit, and I'm, I'm a sports person. It's all home runs and strikeouts, and who's doing well, who's not. And there's also a lot of um, drama, and I, I'm a I'm a writer and. I look for dramatic narratives and, you know, there's tension behind the scenes when it comes to making decisions about investing and why people are doing well. A lot of people aren't, there's pressure on them and there's that scorecard home runs and strikeouts. So it all appeals to me mm-hmm. and personalities, you know, people are drawn to this area because they're often outsized personalities who embrace risk. And I'm not really someone like that myself, but I like writing about that.
0: So, how would you describe your own financial personality? And, and I'm curious if, after all these years working in the space, meeting all these fascinating characters, learning from them, what has been the um, impact on your own personal financial life?
1: That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that. Um, well, we, we're limited here at the Wall Street Journal. Obviously, we can't write about, uh, we can't invest in things that we might write about, and there are all kinds of restrictions, et cetera. Um, but I do have to say that as Someone who's followed really um, wealthy, brilliant, often brilliant, um, money money managers for over for two decades, I've become less and less uh, impressed by them and more and more convinced that people should be not trying to beat the market. It's just gotten so much harder to beat the market. It used to be that the people I dealt with had an edge, had an information edge of some kind, be it legal or, or, or not legal. Um, they'd get some information from somebody on Wall Street. They'd get information from a corporate executive. They'd have some ability to get information before everybody else. They're faster, they're quicker, etc. Or they're just better at reading financial tables than others, and they can pour through reports and find little things. You can't do that anymore. The, the, the field has just been leveled um, by regulators, by technology things happen much faster it's just harder for these overpaid money managers to beat the market and they've they've underperformed for years and so and partly it's just getting older you get a little more cynical and and jaded but i've become a little more skeptical about the ability of money managers to outperform And, and i've become more convinced of the importance of being diversified and not mm-hmm. paying uh, high fees uh, to to have your money managed,
0: and you see that even in the financial industry, where I have many friends who are planners, certified financial professionals, they are not boasting returns to clients. Rather, they're saying we will help you with the planning side, and then we will outsource the retirement planning and investing to you know the intelligent portfolio from Schwab or you know or like yeah, yeah, something yeah. that's like uh, takes out the human element because they're also realizing that they they can't they cannot beat the market and if they can it's just dumb luck.
1: Yeah, you know what I find fascinating is that the dumb money, they call it the dumb money, the individual investors, they get it. They they they've shifted. You don't go to like a barbecue or somewhere, and people talk about their favorite stocks like they used to. I don't know. I think you're younger than I am. But back in the late 90s, everything was, you know, Pets.com and Yahoo and uh, Qualcomm and where my stock's going. The average investor, and I'm, I'm speaking broadly, it's not everybody, but the average individual investor has has given up trying to chase the market and find the next stock stock. I'm not saying they don't do it sometimes. Maybe they have one or two. but They've, for the large part, shifted into ETFs, into index funds, and to trying to track the market. But the sophisticated, the so-called sophisticated investor, be it the institution, the, uh, the insurance company, pension funds, endowment, they're still trying to find the next hedge fund, the hot hedge fund, the next George Soros, the next John Paulson. They think they can find them, and they're paying a lot in fees as a result. So in some ways, the individual investor, I would argue, is doing better, is is, is ahead of the uh, institutional investor, the smart guy. Do you watch Billions? I do not. No. it's too. It's too – it's what I write about every day. It's like I'm not going to go home and watch the stuff I deal with all day long. No.
0: But it is very much a personification of everything you're describing and – I think you know, give it a try. I think, um, well, you know, it does. It does beg the question. There is such a sort of bravado that is attached to um, these, like super investors. Like they kind of, like you know, when I think of the lead character in the show, and a lot of these hedge fund guys, and the woman. <laughs> um, there, there's this like ego, right? That
1: yeah, um, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and that, if, that's if, a funny if, thing. Like people, If they can't be if if to the if to Jim Simons point where it's like really guys it's just a, it's a, it's a formula. It's a you know. Um is there going to be a day when this is not as sexy as it as it is perceived currently like in the media and also, you know, in, in real life frankly? I
1: I worry about that as a journalist because this is what I do. And um <laughs> it, you know, it's harder it, it's weird. It, um many of the stories, if not most of the stories of people Doing outsized things, big losses, big gains. It's these like sixty-five year olds, and I don't know where the next generation is. They're either more boring, they're just underperforming.
0: They're starting they're, companies that are getting overvalued, and yeah. that is feeding their, that is inflating their egos.
1: Right. Yeah. So the shift is shifted from Wall Street out to Silicon Valley, right. uh, the, the sexy side of things. Right. So it makes it harder for me, and that's part of the reason why I wrote this book. In some ways. Jim Simons and Renaissance Technologies are the last of the Mohicans They're the last people that year in, year out beat the market, have some new approach, super duper smart, sexy and, and, and just cutting edge. And that's kind of part of why I, I did it. And my day job at the journal, I'm finding people more boring and disappointing than ever. So I thought <laughs> I would at least at night. Oh boy, <laughs> hope you're not listening. No, I don't mean don't write, don't read the journal. There's still important things going on. So we find them. It's just harder to find the outside characters. And here were a bunch out in Long Island that people hadn't written about. So that's part of the reason I did the book, but keep your journal subscription. I am a journal subscriber for many years for many years.
0: (laughs) Okay. Personal question for you. Uh, it is the new year and, uh, it's, it's a big year. It's 2020 new decade. What's a financial resolution if you have one or a goal or a theme that you'd like to achieve this year?
1: A financial resolution. I think you're going to ask me about other kind of resolution.
0: And by the way, this is a question that we're doing in partnership with our great sponsor, Chase. I
1: I would like to bank much more at Chase. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Do much more banking at Chase. Um, You know, fees. Fees are – it's cliched at this point. But you got to review mutual funds and others to make sure that you don't have one where it's just a little bit above the average. There's no reason that you should be paying up – there are a few here and there that outperform, but it's, again, I'm not sure I'm adding that much here, but uh, reassessing and making sure that everything's low fees uh, in terms of everything, every product you're in.
0: I did that one year. I yeah. called my financial planner and I said, I just want to get a list of all the funds in our portfolio and the uh, the fee, basically. Yeah, yeah. And they were probably like, Ugh. Great. More work for us. But this is the script. You call your planner or you look through the – you just go online and you can probably get a a big – like a a download of an Excel spreadsheet or someone will get it for you. And if it's more than a percent, I would say – why? Why is it more than a percent? There was one fund that we kept in the portfolio that was like a little bit more on the expensive side as far as the expense ratio is like 1.3 or something. And the justification was that this is an emerging market fund. It needs to be a little bit more mm. management, human management oversight going on because it's a pretty volatile and it's just, it's a different beast than say, sure. just like tracking an index. Um, yeah. So we kept that, but we also, I, I think we probably saved over the course of our, you know, 30 years, let's say, in that we're going to be in this portfolio is like tens of thousands of dollars uh, for a decision that we made this early on and just by basically swapping out some mutual funds for index funds or ETFs. I like that.
1: I like that. That's great. I also would urge people to consider the fact that um, the market is trading close to 20 PE ratio. And last year, it wasn't really earnings that helped the market. It was how high the PE went from like 15, 16 to close to 20. Um, so it's not to say everyone should sell everything, but it's a reminder to be diversified. Another cliche, yeah. but, um, you know, we've, we've had a, a huge run up. So make sure you diversify. diversified.
0: Well, there was a lot of chatter about recession. I would say last year was like overwhelming discussion. <laughs> I couldn't not turn on the, like CNBC or yeah. ha- I couldn't ha- not have a guest on the show that was an investing expert and not ask him about a recession. Now it seems like the tides are turning. Like maybe that we were a little too, too skeptical. What do you think?
1: So listen, one, one thing I've learned from – My books especially, every book I've written is about how the experts get it wrong. I wrote uh, a book called The Greatest Trade Ever. It's about 2008 and how Geithner and Greenspan and Bernanke and all the banks got that wrong. And It was an outside guy named John Paulson, uh, uh, a merger arb, who made $20 billion anticipating the financial meltdown. I wrote a book called The Frackers about the energy revolution – All the big energy companies got that wrong. They gave up on America. We're talking about Exxon and Chevron, BP. They were anywhere but America, and it took some outsiders to get that right and to lead this renaissance. And this book right now, it's about Jim Simons, who's a mathematician and a scientist. They they don't employ economists, they don't employ traders and investors. So the point being, I can give you some analysis, but the experts keep getting it wrong. I'm not considering myself an expert, but I'm saying. Take everything with a grain of salt that you hear and just yeah. be diversified and try not to make these predictions because that's just hard.
0: It's fun to talk about it, though, but it yeah is. it's it's fun to speculate, but when it gets down to it, just uh go back to basics, which is diversification, keep a long term view, reduce your fees. So what is next for you as somebody who is always uh, looking for the next juicy story? Is there something that is percolating on your on your end as far as your next
1: book or next piece? I've got stuff in the journal that I'm working on, more investigative pieces that um, I'm excited about. And I have a couple of ideas for a next book, but I'm still recovering from this one. Frankly, it's, <laughs> it was it's the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And uh, I need a little bit of time to uh, digest and process and recover. But uh, yeah, if, if you, you know, you're, you've know you got a big audience, if anybody's got a good topic, feel free to reach out yeah. to me and e- email LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera. I'm always eager to interact with people.
0: Well, congratulations. Uh, hopefully uh, your efforts are paying off. You're getting um, a lot of praise for this book. And it's uh, been written about in many places, bestseller lists. And the book, again, Everybody's called The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. Greg Zuckerman, thanks so much.
1: Oh, great to be here.
0: You can learn more about Gregory on his website gregoryzuckerman.com. He's on Twitter at gzuckerman and the book again is called The Man Who Solved The Market. All this information is on somoneypodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in everybody and I hope your day is so money.